Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word now, uh, we do ask that you would help us to understand the text, give us hearts that desire to grow in our understanding of you and your son, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that the end result would be that we would all be able to see clear the beauty of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we admit our neediness and dependence upon you. For this, we ask this for our extreme joy and your glory. Amen. Do you love Jesus? Uh, that's a question that we asked last time I had the privilege to preach back in December, and a question, again, we're going to consider this morning. And that's because the love for Jesus Christ is at the very heart of Christianity, which is to say that it's not optional. It's an essential. Jesus commended the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 for their work and toil and patient endurance. <clears throat> they couldn't bear with evil and had tested false apostles and exposed them as frauds. They had even endured suffering for the name of Jesus. They were doctrinally sound. They were discerning. They were durable. Yet even so, Jesus gave them this devastating rebuke. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And this love they had at first, this first love we said last time is a love for Christ. Apparently, the church in Ephesus was doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Doctrinal purity and discernment had become ends themselves rather than a means to an end. And for Christians, the end is always a love for Jesus Christ. And so we're looking at ourselves this morning. We're asking that question, uh, do you, do I... Do we love King Jesus? And if not, then we need to heed Christ's rebuke there in Revelation 2. We need to remember and repent. <clears throat> and part of that remembering is going back and beholding Christ and remembering forgiveness. And I think our passage this morning in Luke 7, 36 to 50, uh, helps us do just that. It helps us see with fresh eyes the beauty of Christ's person, the beauty of his mission, and it also helps us see our desperate need. So as you look here at Luke 7, uh, we're reminded Luke, the physician, the companion of Paul, writes this gospel in the form of a letter to a man named Theophilus so that he could have certainty concerning the things he'd been taught. That he might have certainty as to the true identity of Jesus Christ and his mission. And just a, a few verses prior to our text, in Luke 7, 18, we learn that John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus and asked, are you the one who is to come? Shall we look for another? And Jesus responded to that question by alluding to Isaiah 29 and, and 35, those beautiful texts with the speech of the inauguration of the kingdom of God and said, Jesus said, 
Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus is the long way to Messiah. And so Luke is helping Theophilus understand Christ's true identity. And so it's along these lines and with this emphasis that we come to our text where Luke records this account of Christ's interaction with the sinful woman. And I dearly love all of scripture, but this is a particularly sweet and precious passage. Uh, this text proclaims that Jesus is a true prophet, uh, but way more than a prophet, he's a king and a priest. Uh, but even more than all of that, uh, he is our savior. He is one who has the divine authority to forgive sins. This text boldly and clearly displays Christ's glorious person and mission and then paints this beautiful picture of one sinner's love for Jesus. And so we're going to walk through this text and look at some different responses to Jesus. And then we're going to look at Jesus' different response to other people. And as we do this, let's try to keep in mind Christ's person Christ's mission, and our love. And again, we're asking the question of ourselves this morning, do I love King Jesus? First then, let's look at uh, our first point would be the beautiful fruit of forgiveness. And that is the, the sinful woman's response to Jesus. Again, starting at Luke <clears throat> 7.36, we read, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So this Pharisee, later identified as Simon, asked Jesus to eat with him. And remember, Pharisees were zealous followers of the Torah, or the law, the Old Testament scriptures. They were extremely concerned with maintaining ritual purity and sought to follow uh, the Old Testament laws to the T. They were educated men who were widely respected by first century Jews, and they were the religious elites of the day. And although they were generally opposed to Christ and his teaching, this man, for whatever reasons, invites Jesus for a meal, and they reclined at table. And, and literally... The guests would have laid down on a carpet of sorts, leaned their left elbow if they were right-handed on pillows so that their head would be near the food table and the food table was low to the ground. Their sandals would be removed. Their legs would be expended, extended behind them, kind of away from the food, which I'm sure everyone's glad for that. And uh, the house was open so that others could congregate near the edges and listen in on the discussion. Closest thing that I could think of of something like this in our day and age would be something like gathering at an outdoor pavilion in a park where uh, the food is kind of there and maybe someone is giving a presentation, passerbys can maybe hear the speech and, and come up to the edges and hear what's going on. But they wouldn't have been, uh, you know, the invited guests that would be near the speaker. And then Luke describes this woman of the city who was a sinner. We're not given her name, that's her description. And we're not exactly sure uh, what to make of that description. It most likely means that she was a prostitute. Uh, that's my guess. Uh, she has the reputation of being a woman of the city and a sinner. 
with the population of Galilee being somewhere around 200,000, uh, some people estimating as high as 700,000, it would seem doubtful that her specific sins were known. I mean, it's possible. I think doubtful. And so it's probably more likely that her appearance somehow identified her as a sinner. So probably she was a prostitute and her appearance gave her occupation away. But either way, regardless of how, she was known as a sinner. But when this woman hears that Jesus is at Simon's house, she goes to him and brings an alabaster flask of ointment with her. And this flask might have been something like a fancy vase with a long, maybe curved neck containing expensive perfume. Or it might even been a smaller vessel that would have been attached around her neck with some sort of necklace. But both would have been expensive. Both would have contained perfume. And when she arrives, she doesn't stay on the periphery, but moves directly to Jesus' feet, and she begins to kiss his feet. And the Greek grammar here, here highlights that she was incessantly kissing his feet. So picture we have here is that this woman, this woman who has a reputation as a sinner, wants to honor Jesus. She brings what's likely, uh, most likely her, her most valuable possession, this perfume, probably something that she was saving for the burial of, of a loved one, and then kisses his feet, which is an act of homage and worship, but also, as, as we would imagine, one of deep humility. To kiss someone is to honor them, but to kiss their feet resembles more something of a conquered enemy, a conquered and, and submissive enemy, the, the position that they would take. And so she kisses his feet, pours perfume on his feet, Normally, this perfume would have, be, would have been put on the head, but maybe the reclining position made that impractical, impossible. Or maybe this act of deep humility was always her primary intent, or perhaps she, she didn't feel worthy of the honor and so simply assumed her role as Christ's servant because caring for the guest feet was typically a household servant's job, and so she just assumes that role. But she kisses his feet, and as she does, she begins to weep, literally rain tears. And as she wets his feet with her tears, she dries them with her hair. Respectable Jewish women never let down their hair in public like this. Only harlots, only adulteresses. Really everything about this scene as it relates to this sinful woman is quite scandalous. Not to mention the fact that as a sinner, she shouldn't even be touching a rabbi's person. So clearly this woman doesn't care about social norms. She doesn't care about the world's honor. Right? She's already lost that. She, she doesn't care what others might say. She has one mind. She has this, this sort of singular focus, and that is to pay tribute to Jesus. And in verse 47, Jesus commends this as an act of love. This is a beautiful picture of a zealous love for Christ. What we also learn here is that this woman's love for Jesus is the fruit of forgiveness. We learn this in verse 47 when Jesus says, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Uh, and the verbs here are in what are called the perfect tense. So the perfect tense describes a completed verbal action that occurred in the past, but which produced a state of being or a result that existed in the present. More on that in a minute, but for now... We see that this woman, when she comes to Jesus, she's already been forgiven of her sins. Her forgiveness is a past event. So her action here is a response to that forgiveness. It's an act of love and devotion 
and honor and thanksgiving. And we're not told what happened previously or where she met Jesus or how she came to believe in him, where their paths crossed, but she is forgiven. In Luke's chronology, in his gospel earlier on, in Luke 5, just a few chapters earlier, it's recorded that Jesus healed a paralytic. In verse 23, Jesus told the Pharisees, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And it's already been established in Luke's chronology that Jesus' mission was to forgive sins. In Luke 2.11, for example, if you remember, the angels told the shepherds there, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. He's called Jesus in Matthew 1.21 because he's going to come and save his people from their sins. In Isaiah 53.5, we learn of the suffering servant's mission. And we read it earlier. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So the forgiveness of sins to reconcile God's people to himself is at the heart, is at the very core of Christ's mission. And so at some previous point, perhaps even at the healing of the paralytic, somehow this woman heard Jesus speak, embraced his message, embraced the gospel, embraced his mission, and embraced his person. She believed and was forgiven. And again, we know this miracle has already taken place because of the verb tenses and for some other reasons, uh, which we're still yet to get to. Uh, but here, again, we're just highlighting her beautiful response to forgiveness. She's overwhelmed with, with emotion. She's broken. She is humbled. She's thankful. She's grateful. And again, she has this singular focus to love and honor Jesus. Her goal was to honor and worship him. It seems in that process, emotion overcame her. Her many sins had been forgiven, and so she loves Christ. She loves his goodness loves his grace, and so she kisses his feet, weeping, forgiven. These were love tears, tears of joy, probably tears of absolute relief and hope, that the fruit of a heart overwhelmed by God's grace and God's mercy. Society had labeled her a sinner. And particularly in that society, there was no hope of any sort of redemption, no way to get out of that predicament. That is just who she was. No hope of reconciliation with God. No hope of righteousness. She had carried that sin burden probably for a long time. And now that burden was lifted. Jesus' person, the Savior of the world, the long-awaited Messiah of King David's line had come. And shocker of all shockers, he is a grace-bestowing, kind, and compassionate king. And she embraced this true identity. The messianic king had accepted her and declared her righteous, forgiven. And so she loved Jesus. We see that this woman had a right view of self, a right view of Jesus, and a right view of Jesus' mission, which resulted in this fruit of faith, the beautiful fruit of forgiveness. Which brings us to our second point, and that is the awful fruit of unbelief the awful fruit of unbelief, and that is Simon's response to Jesus. 
Verse 39 says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. The Pharisee knew this woman was a sinner. And as such, whatever, whoever she touched would have been unclean. Therefore, he concludes that Jesus cannot be a prophet, as some people were saying, because apparently Jesus doesn't even know the true identity of this woman. He doesn't know that this woman was a great sinner. A true prophet in his mind would be able to discern this truth. And so Simon has a wrong view of Jesus and a wrong view of self. He doesn't believe that Jesus is a prophet, let alone the long-awaited Messiah and Savior, and he has a wrong view of self. He, he sees himself in another category of righteousness than this woman. He says in his heart that Jesus if he were a prophet, would have known, and this is his words, what sort of woman, you know, what kind of woman, unlike Simon, that's, that's what he's saying, uh, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So in, in Simon's mind, she is the sinner, not Simon. But he also has a wrong view of Jesus' mission. He doesn't understand that Jesus, the Messiah, came to save sinners. Jesus came to bring forgiveness and reconciliation. That's his Isaiah 53 mission. He's also the pure and righteous one. Nothing can make this holy one of God unclean. And then on top of that, this woman wasn't unclean because she had already been forgiven. She was clean. Her love for Jesus, the Messiah, is proof of that reality. And so we see that from top to bottom, Simon has it all wrong. He is actually the one who's unclean. And his lack of love for Jesus Christ proves he's unclean. Because if he was clean, if his sins were forgiven, then he would love Jesus. If he was clean, if he was righteous and himself reconciled to God, then he would have embraced Christ as prophet and more than a prophet. He would have embraced him as the long-awaited Messiah of David's line who had come to save his people from their sins. But as it is, Simon has no love for Jesus and he has no love for sinners. All of which is evidence or proof that Simon remains in his sins. And so Simon's response to Jesus and this woman is the awful fruit of unbelief. And now we see, thirdly, the devastating no love indictment. Jesus' response to Simon. Our narrative continues there in verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. So Simon doesn't believe Jesus is a prophet, by, but ironically, Jesus proves that he is a prophet by answering Simon's thoughts. And then Jesus tells this parable of a moneylender and two debtors. 
One debtor owes 500 denarii, the other one owes 50. Denarii was a day's wages for her labor, so the first owes about a year and a half's wages, the other owes a little less than two months' wages. Neither debts are small amounts. Both debts are forgiven. And the moral of the story is that the one who is forgiven most loves most. But then we see that Jesus proceeds to show Simon how he has not loved him, how Simon hasn't loved Jesus, which in light of the parable is evidence that Simon has not been forgiven his debts. And Jesus declares that the woman's sins are forgiven, not Simon's. Uh, that's a bold claim to deity and exalts the privileges of the Messiah, uh, the Savior, but it's also a strong indictment of the state of this religious man's heart. Simon believes he's right with God because of his religiosity, his position uh, as a Pharisee, and his external morality, but in fact, his lack of love for Jesus is evidence of his lack of forgiveness, and hence is evidence of his unreconciled state before God. Jesus says to him, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. It would have been customary for the host to offer his guests water to wash their feet, or they might have had a household servant do this. Uh, for us, uh, this tradition is akin, I think, to offering to take a, a guest coat or offer them something to drink when they arrive after a long trip or, you know, hey, here, sit on the couch. Uh, let's hang out until the, till the food is ready, whatever. But Simon doesn't offer any of this to Jesus. He doesn't value Jesus as a distinguished guest. If he had embraced Jesus, even as a prophet, let alone the true Messiah, then he would have rolled out the red carpet, but he doesn't do any of that. Yet we see this woman does. In her own way and with her own means, she rolls out the red carpet. She washes his feet with her tears, dries them with her hair. She has no pride. The dirt from Christ's feet is now matted in her hair. But apparently she doesn't care for herself, only that Jesus, the Messiah, her Savior, is honored. But Christ isn't finished making his case against Simon. Jesus goes on to say, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And again, it would have been customary for the host to greet his visitors with a kiss. Not mandatory, but customary. It would have been a token of honor. But Jesus, the king, the prophet, receives no such kindness from Simon, but he does receive this from the sinful woman. And Simon doesn't anoint his head with oil, Again, that would have been customary, but not necessarily required. Oil or perfume was sometimes uh, offered as a refreshment. If you remember, Jesus, uh, Jesus told his followers to anoint their heads with oil when they fasted because they weren't, you know, to show other people that they were fasting. Uh, the oil uh, was a way to freshen up a bit. And Simon doesn't extend even this common courtesy to Jesus, but this woman anoints even Jesus' feet with perfume. In all of these acts, she goes way beyond what is customary or expected. Her actions show that she highly values Jesus, but Simon's actions indict him. And so Jesus says, therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, over the years, uh, some people have misinterpreted Jesus' words here, and they've understood them to mean that her zealous love is the reason for her forgiveness. 
She loved much, therefore, because she loved much, she's forgiven. But the therefore at the beginning of the sentence goes best with the phrase, I tell you. Because of her love, because of this evidence, Jesus can then say, therefore, I tell you, her sins are forgiven. And when the text says, for she loved much, that for there uh, isn't causal in meaning. Uh, that is to say, it's not to be taken as a because, but more something like a thus. That's further explanation that refers back to her actions. So uh, a Greek scholar, Howard Marshall, explains the text should be read uh, more this way. Because of this conduct, I tell you that her many sins have been forgiven as is evidenced by the fact that she loved much. I think that's how we're to take it. I think he's exactly right. But even beyond grammar, we see that this is the clear point of the parable. The forgiveness of debts is in view in the point of the parable. If you notice, neither debtor does anything to earn the forgiveness of their debt. It's the result of the grace and the kindness and the mercy of the moneylender. Their love, then, is a response to the lender's generosity and forgiveness. Therefore, when Jesus says, but he who is forgiven little loves little, he indicts Simon. Jesus just laid out evidence that proves Simon has zero love for Jesus. That's what Jesus has been doing, making a case against Simon. He hasn't honored him or valued him, even as a normal guest. And so his lack of love for Jesus then is evidence that his debts have never been forgiven. Because even the one who has been forgiven little loves at least little. Simon thinks that he's right with God. But if he were right with God, then he would have embraced Jesus as the Messiah, as his Savior, and he would have loved him as such. As it is, Simon is unaware of his need for forgiveness, and he's unaware of Jesus' true identity. And so again, he's wrong about himself, wrong about Jesus, and so he receives this devastating no-love indictment. You see, it's not that Simon's a little sinner and so is forgiven little, therefore he loves little. That, that's not the point either. It's, it's not that Simon is a 50 denarii sinner and then this woman is the big sinner. She's a 500 denarii sinner. Again, that's not the point. The point is that those who are forgiven love. That's the point. Whether they've been forgiven 50 or whether they've been forgiven 500, they've had a debt that's been forgiven. They love. Simon's lack of love proves that his debt hasn't been forgiven. And so he receives this devastating no-love indictment. Which brings us lastly to the wonderful declaration of forgiveness. And that is Jesus' response to the sinful woman. Verse 48 says, and Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to them, or he said to the woman, rather, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus didn't sugarcoat this woman's past. He explained, apparently in front of Simon and the woman, that her sins were many. That is true. But then he turns to her, and he gives her this wonderful declaration. Your sins are forgiven. And again, the verb is in the perfect tense. It points to a past event that had implications for the present. The idea is this, your sins have been forgiven. She's already forgiven. Her love for Jesus Christ is evidence or, or proof of that. And so based on that evidence, Jesus makes this sweet declaration. He verbally confirms what this woman already knew and 
had already experienced. And the other guests are absolutely shocked. And so say, who is this who even forgives sins? Uh, earlier on in Luke, again, a couple chapters earlier in, in chapter five, the Pharisees added to that shock, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they charged him there with blasphemy. And they were right from one perspective because only God can forgive sins, but they were wrong in their understanding of Jesus. He is the Messiah who had been given this divine privilege from the Father to forgive sins. And then Jesus turns his attention to this woman once again and in front of the skeptic says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And this were a, a scene from a movie. The, the, the music would have changed. The camera zooms in on this lady, on her face. Now it's just between maybe Jesus and her. And I think this is lovely because you see, I, I doubt very strongly that the Jews would have treated this woman any differently after Jesus's commendation of her here based on how they viewed Jesus later on in the gospels and so forth. My guess is that as long as she remained in this geographical location, she would always, right, in this life, to most people, be known as the sinner from the city that probably was gonna follow her. And so I believe Jesus blesses her here with this commendation so that she could leave from there and maybe still face ridicule and condemnation from the crowds and the religious elite, but always know exactly what her savior, her king of David's line, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, thought of her. Isn't that wonderful? That's the kindness of our Lord and Savior. He didn't have to do that. These are precious words. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Right there in front of everybody. Her love didn't save her. Her zeal didn't save her. It was Christ's grace through faith, her faith, that saved this one. She was healed of her moral and of her spiritual disease and so eternally reconciled with God. She was saved and so could go in peace. Peace with God. She was forgiven and her love was the evidence and so that's the wonderful declaration of forgiveness. Which brings us back to that all-important question we started with. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? This story is recounted here and this parable is told and explained so that we, the reader, the audience, the recipients of this message might ask ourselves this question. What is my response to Jesus? Do I love Jesus? Or am I like Simon? Do I love Jesus or am I self-righteous and unaware of my need for forgiveness? Do I reject the possibility that Jesus is indeed a true prophet and way more than a prophet? Do I have a right and an accurate view of self and a right view of Jesus Christ and his mission? If so, then there should be evidence in my life that I do love Jesus. Friends, don't be self-deceived. If there's no love for Jesus Christ in your life, then there's no forgiveness. That's the point of the passage. That's what this text is teaching. If there's no love for Jesus in your life, 
then there's no forgiveness. There's not going to be a single soul in the eternal state who has no love for Jesus. And then if there is evidence in your life that you do love Jesus, and I hope that's the case for everyone here, then how does it compare to this woman's zealous love? And we need to be careful here. We shouldn't come to this text and, and see this woman's love and then try to mimic it in our own life and then think that that is somehow pleasing to God. That's not the, the point. That's to walk basically the parable backwards, put the cart before the horse. But I think that it's a valid and a natural response to this woman's zealous love for Christ in this passage. And I think it's a normal response here to be encouraged and motivated and convicted to love Christ more. And ask really the question of our own souls, do I revel in this grace? Do I thank God regularly for his forgiveness? Am I willing to be embarrassed and chastised by society on account of love? on account of my love for Jesus Christ? Am I willing to, to throw all social caution to the wind out of my love and devotion for him? You see, this woman's response to Jesus here is so lovely and compelling to true believers because it's, it's so raw and honest and right. She has a low view of self and a high view of Jesus. She doesn't care what others think but only what Christ thinks. She has no fear of man. She cares more about what Jesus thinks of her than what people think of her. She knows whom to please, whom to honor. She has extreme tunnel vision at this point in her life. Her, her focus at this moment in time is absolutely singular. And it's precious. Remember Revelation was written to those who had embraced Jesus as king or at least thought they had but they had abandoned their first love and Jesus told them they needed to remember and repent otherwise they, were, they would lose their lampstand they'd, they'd cease to be a church and the assumption is that all the true believers in the Ephesian church would feel the sting of Christ's rebuke and so turn and rekindle their love for Christ Jesus said elsewhere my Sheep, hear my voice and follow me. So that is the assumption. God's people would, would, would hear and follow. They would remember and repent and so do the works they did at first. Brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that this woman's zealous love for Jesus Christ is that first work. So if our love has grown cold, then first of all, we need to go back and remember the gospel. We need to remember how much we've been forgiven. We need to... Think about where we would all be if God's grace hadn't been poured out on us in bucket loads. We would all be without hope and change of our situation. The guilt of our sins would absolutely crush us. We'd be feeling that guilt and condemnation 24-7. You see, the grace that this simple woman from the city received, this grace that caused her to pour out her earthly treasure on Jesus and throw all caution to the wind and risk an enormous scandal for the sake of Jesus Christ, that grace is the exact same grace God has bestowed on you and God has bestowed on me. It's the same grace. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. We need to remember this. 
we need to remember our total depravity apart from God's grace. So if you're in Christ, then you've been forgiven much. Remember this. And as you remember this, as you dwell on this, as your soul marinates in this glorious truth, a zealous love for Christ will be fanned into flame and be rekindled. Brothers and sisters, if we notice that our zeal for Christ has waned, if we notice that spiritually we're dry, we're just going through the motions, we need to remember how much we've been forgiven and what that forgiveness means. Reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, joy forevermore. We must go back. And that's why we reviewed this passage. Every true believer can read this passage and place themselves in this woman's shoes. Every single believer. And, and, and this is where we want to be. This is where we want to stay. All true believers are this. But sadly, over time, it seems the sinful tendency is to move on from brokenness and neediness and humility. And believers can sometimes be more characterized as self-righteous and arrogant and self-sufficient. And so the rebuke in Revelation 2 is sometimes directed toward us. Go back. Be broken. Remember forgiveness. And so produce the first works. Zealously love Christ. Go back and behold Christ's person. That's ultimately what this text is about. It's what the Bible is about. It's what life is about. It's not so much about our love for him as it is about his true identity. Jesus' glory takes center stage here. He's prophet, priest, and king. This woman's love serves simply to highlight the glory of Christ. It honors him. It exalts him. He's the long-awaited Messiah who has come to save his people from their sins. He is our wonderful Savior, our Redeemer, our Rescuer. I don't know about you, but when I read and, and study this account, it breaks me. I, I think that's why I love this text so much. Uh, I read this and I'm broken because I'm thinking, man, how ungrateful I've been for the grace poured out of me. Uh, you know, the words of Isaiah, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man with unclean lips. Revealing my unclean heart. How often I have not rightly cherished the forgiveness of my, my sins and I have let my love for Christ go cold. Lord, forgive me, please. Whatever it takes, rekindle that fire. It doesn't matter what happens to me in this life, what other accolades I might get from people. I am forgiven my king is Christ. Help my unbelief. Lord, help me respond rightfully to this grace with a zealous love. Help me honor this, this glorious king. Help me never to be in a place where I just take forgiveness for granted. Brothers and sisters, we need to regularly, often go back and remember and repent. We try to incorporate that in our public worship and on a regular meeting so that we regularly do this. Let's hopefully do this, but we need to do this. And when we do this, 
We're going to love other people. That's going to be one of the, the visible fruits. We're going to extend to other people the same mercy and compassion that we've so graciously received. The person who loves Christ zealously, the person who saturates their soul in this gospel is going to shower other people with grace and kindness and mercy and compassion and easily forgive them when they sin against them. Phil Riken challenges here and asks, are you fed up with the sinner in your life? Are you sympathetic with his sinful weakness? Or are you glad that you do not have the problems he has or give in to the temptations <clears throat> he faces? Have you given up on what God can do in another sinner's life? <clears throat> and what is your attitude toward people who are poor and needy? Are you inclined to think that they are responsible for their own predicament and therefore undeserving of your mercy? These are all things love would never do. <clears throat> what is our attitude towards sinners here at Kenwood? Do we, uh, do we long for their repentance and forgiveness or do we condemn them in our hearts? Do we write sinners off or, or do we see them as potential worshipers of our king and prospective family members? <clears throat> I don't know about you, but studying this passage makes me desperately want to see prostitutes bow before King Jesus, honoring him with their sins forgiven, the guilt that they're carrying gone forever. It makes me want to see my brothers and sisters in Christ love King Jesus in a similar fashion to this lady with humility and zeal and brokenness. And I think this is because love relishes in sharing the joy of salvation. Love delights in sharing its treasure. And we can see how this zealous love for Jesus Christ highly exalts his person and accurately proclaims the excellencies of his person and also his mission. So I think it's right for us to come to this text and ask the question, do you, do I, do we love Jesus Christ preeminently? Is Jesus Christ our singular focus as a church, as individuals? Do we have tunnel vision, the right tunnel vision? Do we get hung up on the right thing. If not, we need to go back and remember. We need to go back and repent and do the first works. And we need to remember Christ's person, Christ's mission and our desperate need. And then boldly go forth in peace with the assurance that our faith has saved us. That our aim in life might always be Christ and his exaltation. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, it is my prayer for each and every one of us here this morning that we would be in a place in our heart of hearts where this sinful woman from the city was. My prayer is that we would remain there. If we're not there, that we would get there. And once we get there, that we would 
strive and fight and scrap to remain there. Help us to daily revel in the gospel. Help us to regularly ponder the glory of Jesus Christ. Help us to have a a helpful self-forgetfulness that you might be glorified and that our joy might be to the uttermost. And so, Lord, uh, we need you to do this work in our hearts. We ask this for your glory and our joy. Amen.